Hi, and welcome to Conversations to Connect. I'm Fenella Hawksley, and this podcast is brought to you in collaboration with the Campaign to End Loneliness. Social isolation and loneliness are widespread and can have a huge impact on health, happiness, and overall well-being. All people of all ages need connections that matter, and on this podcast, we will be hosting conversations to share insights, knowledge, and research to inspire change and to help people feel more connected. On today's episode, I'm joined by Mark Abraham, or Mark the Vet, as he is commonly referred to. Mark is an award-winning veterinary surgeon, broadcaster, author, and animal welfare campaigner. Mark was awarded an OBE for services to animal welfare in the 2021 Queen's Birthday Honours. As well as campaigning to improve animal welfare in the UK, Mark volunteers around the world and visits schools and teaches pupils about looking after animals and each other. Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me on, Camilla. <laughs> We've got a lot to get through. We do, because you're a very busy man. <laughs> I am. Although we have found a couple of hours just to hang out this afternoon, which is... That's true. Which is rather pleasant, actually, <laughs> and a nice break from campaigning. To start, it, before we get into all of your experience with animals, what connects you with the topic of loneliness? I think through various fa- phases of my life, I've experienced loneliness, and that's... I, and I, and I know we were talking about this earlier, what defines loneliness is it such mm-hmm. a bad thing, but I think it's a, it's a, a feeling of uh, discomfort from being on your own, I think would be a good definition of loneliness. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people, as, again, as we said, are quite happy just being on their own. And are they lonely then? But I think it's almost like a, it's, it's a negative connotation, isn't it, loneliness? Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, growing up, definitely, definitely lonely. All through, like, early years, all through teens... Because I was a nerd, I was a real geek. I mean, in those days, we used to call those sort of people squares. Because I just, I was obsessed with nature and wildlife, and I questioned everything. And I never really kind of conformed to being a, a social kid, social teenager. So I did prefer the company of tadpoles, caterpillars, butterflies birds, broken eggshells, to what everyone else seemed to be doing, which was the norm, probably because I just maybe didn't have the confidence to fit in or felt different enough to not engage. So, yeah, I definitely felt loneliness there. I think through, as I say, teenage years, studying so hard because I had to be a vet. It wasn't that I wanted to be one. We were way past that. I when had, did you know had to be, you had well, to be a vet? Apparently when I was three. Oh, wow. And that's a story that my mum is more than happy to tell every single person that she meets. I had a pet tortoise, and the tortoise had a wound in its leg, a gash in its leg, and the gash had a maggot in it. And I managed to scoop out the maggot with a twig in the back garden and clean the wound, and the wound got better, the leg got better, the tortoise got better. So I had that sort of first experience of making an animal better which was the beginning of a, of a long journey that still exists today. So I, I, it was one of the first things I kind of knew about that existed. My uncle was about two sides of the family, never spoke, but I was aware of the profession. I was aware of how great that made me feel to make an animal better. And I think that combination at that age was like, right, I have to help animals. And I guess the older I got, the more I realised that a vet is the, the ultimate, if you like, for what I wanted to do personally and achieve. And it was all about having to be a vet rather than just wanting to be one. So did you always feel a connection with animals? Always, more than humans. Still do, to some extent. I just felt, I always felt an empathy and a, and a compassion for the underdog. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the obvious underdog is animals. Mm-hmm. And I think in those days, it was nature. So, you know, commonly, I'd go around to my parents' friend's house. We'd go there, and I'd, as soon as I arrived, they'd just give me a jam jar. And I'd just disappear. And I'd come back at the end of three, four hours with pond water or, as I say, frog spawn or moths or feathers that I'd found. So you said that it was quite a lonely time growing up and, in your own words, being nerdy and knowing that you wanted to be a vet. But what was it that made you feel connected to animals? I think the vulnerability, really. I, I think I, I shared a, a feeling of vulnerability and my my history is 
I'm a third-generation refugee. My grandma escaped the Holocaust. Her parents were murdered in Auschwitz. So I've always had a sense of feeling of, of how underdogs are t- treated and how the most vulnerable are kind of treated throughout history, running through my veins and taught to me as a, as a child from my family. So I, I guess I've always been aware of if, if, it's, uh, if there's an opportunity to help or connect with the most vulnerable, then kind of why wouldn't you? And I think if you're vul- feeling vulnerable yourself, you, you immediately have common ground. So that helps anyway, any connection, doesn't it, if you have common ground. So that was my common ground, I think, feeling as vulnerable as a tadpole, which sounds <laughs> mental, but it kind of, that, that's it in a nutshell. And then empathising with them and wanting to help. Empathising, compassion, kindness follows that, and just a, a kind of a caring outlook on things and just, just being aware and being, yeah, I think just being aware of people or things or animals that just don't have the same sort of privilege or strengths, I guess, as, as you have, and then trying to make it better for them and that, that community, whether it's animal or human. So let's speak a bit about your journey to becoming a vet, campaigner, broadcaster, author. So you studied to be a vet at university in mm. Edinburgh. What led you towards campaigning? Again, I think coming from a, a fam, familial background of, of injustice, mm-hmm. so Holocaust, persecution, racism, whatever you want to call it, I think you're finely tuned to be aware of other injustices mm-hmm. and to act if you can and I think I was never really a campaigner until I saw something that I just I just couldn't settle mm-hmm. because I thought I've got to do something about this and I think I've got the resources to maybe just have a crack at it and that was 2009 when I was working as an emergency and trauma surgeon there and I saw in my practice eight puppies coming in dying of a horrific disease called parvovirus which is commonly picked up in, in conditions of poor husbandry. For example, puppy farms. And puppy farms are sort of large agricultural units in the middle of nowhere that have maybe 200 breeding bitches that just constantly pump out puppies <gasps> on every heat. Wow. Profit is put always above welfare. They're usually sold by a third-party network, either to pet shops or to dealers that sell to other dealers and to pet shops, uh, or, or pet shop license holders, so a riding stables, for example. Um, and can sell these puppies legally without their mum, way away from where they were born. Okay, So that causes all sorts of problems because the puppies are removed without being socialized, adequately socialised. The mum's obviously are traumatised by their pups being removed. Conditions are horrible, straw, so lots of disease, lots of untreated um, issues, behavioural issues, medical issues, surgical issues. And of course, traditionally the member of the public would go to a third-party seller, like a pet shop, buy a puppy, a little fluffy puppy, oh, it's a bit, bit quiet, oh, yeah, it's a bit stressed in here, take it home, it'll be fine. Take it home, huge stress levels of changing environment, and then the viral load would explode, parvovirus or pneumonia or colitis or all these problems, and they were the medical problems, and the surgical problems like joint problems, eye problems, heart problems behavioural problems because they've been separated too early from their mum, so nervous aggression, potentially separation anxiety. All of a sudden, you've got all these problems that are costing money. This is meant to be a fun little pet for the family, and now it's costing thousands of pounds to correct. Even if it can't get better, it's kept with problems or it has to be put to sleep. So I just one night in 2009, eight puppies came in with this particular disease. They all came in with owners who were clients of subscribing practices to my emergency mm-hmm. clinic and they were all the same sort of age and breed they were all like Jack russell type of dogs and I just kind of thought you know all these families were so excited about buying these puppies they've now got them home there's diarrhoea, there's vomiting, there's blood there's puppies in clear pain, agony they've obviously bought bowls and leads and food and all the fun stuff and now they're in a veterinary hospital we're treating them with sort of isolation outfits on because it's so contagious Two of them died. The rest are on drips and painkillers and antiemetics to stop them being sick. It's like, this is the roughest start. These puppies are like seven, eight weeks old. I just thought, how, how wrong is this? And then I did started researching and I went to the place just outside Brighton where they were born. It was a stable block, but it, they were a legal, licensed third-party puppy seller, like a pet shop. I got the owners to bring in all the paperwork and I unpeeled 
stickers and found out that the dogs are actually being bred in Wales in puppy farms, mm -hmm. legal, licensed puppy farms. Again, the whole thing was legal, but immoral. And realised that it's, this is wrong to sell puppies without the mum present, so you don't see the pup interacting with his or her mother. And that was it. That was the, the sense of injustice that I thought I could do something about. And the reason I thought I could do something about it, because I was, at the time, I was a vet on the Paul O'Grady show when it was on Channel 4, RIP, most amazing guy, and gave me my big break and kind of is responsible for saving so many lives, animals and humans. And I was able to use that media platform to engage with other people. And uh, that started me on the journey. So my early days of campaigning was really to raise awareness, to change public behavior, and to tell people that there's only two options to choose from when you're, when you're getting a dog or cat. Either go to a rescue shelter or straight to the breeder. Do not go to a pet shop or any other third-party dealer. And I started doing a dog show and I involved celebrities to, that started in Brighton and ended up in Primrose Hill. Uh, and the more celebrities that came on board and influencers, the more people were aware of these options to, of how to get a dog responsibly. And we'd have these dog shows where every class was tweaked to the celebrity. So I remember Patsy Palmer, who obviously played Bianca in EastEnders, she was ginger. Uh, she judged Best Red Setter. There was a chocolate shop in Brighton called Chocky Wocky Doodah, famously, and they had a TV programme at the time, and they judged Best Chocolate Labrador. Oh. And then Michael Watson, who was quite a famous boxer, he judged Best Boxer. So we tweaked everything and made it a bit more personal to the celebrity, and then in the middle of the dog show we'd have a parade of dogs that had been rescued from puppy farm breeding facilities. And you'd have French Bulldogs and Chihuahuas wearing lovely collars and maybe little dresses and little tiaras. And in the middle, you'd have these really sad, pathetic, in the true sense of the word, ex-breeding dogs with their teeth dragging on the ground, cesarean scars, broken teeth, rope burns. And it was like, this is the evidence. And weirdly, because I hadn't gone into political campaigning, to, to have evidence is the most crucial thing to form a campaign round. So we had all the elements, really. We had the public engagement, we had celebrities, we had the evidence, and we had a kind of a backstory, and we kind of had a solution, which was to only go to a rescue shelter or to a breeder. So that was the kind of core. We called it Pup Aid after uh, Live Aid, and with Live Aid, which was musical-based, we always had music at the dog shows, and we always had food, and we had stalls. So I... I remember you saying that campaigning is quite a lonely journey, but also it sounds like you were really building community around the campaigning. Yeah. So is it kind of a contrast of fighting for something you, you need to do a lot on your own, and that can be quite lonely and difficult, but you really have to have this sense of community around you to make it easier to continue? You're providing a platform for that community to form. Okay. And that's the stuff that takes the time and the donkey mm -hmm. work behind the scenes. And you don't burden or even tell anyone about it because mm -hmm. you just get on with it. You know, boring to tell someone you've just spent the last six hours sending 250 emails to MPs. However, it's the stuff that needs to be done. And I think a lot of campaigning has seemed to be quite glamorous because you're seen with a celebrity or you're seen doing something cool. 98% of campaigning is really tough mm -hmm. and it's depressing and it's lonely and it isn't sexy or cool or anything to brag about. But yeah, we only sometimes just see the, the, what I call them the scraps from the table. But you do provide these platforms for communities to form. The simpler your campaigning message, the better. One-liners, obviously, even, even better. And you make it as inclusive as possible. And the secret to effective campaigning is to, especially when in political campaigning, is to almost, almost form an ambush. So you surround the chief decision-maker with all the people that can influence him saying, yes, we need this to happen. Celebrities, cross-party MPs, major stakeholders, so for example, big charities that are relevant, public, so all, all around is everyone going, you need to do this, and then they go, we just gotta do this, I suppose. Setting up all those communities to set up the ambush is what takes the time. And the tone and the language and every single word you use is different for everyone you're connecting with. So the public have their own conversation, weirdly. The, the celebrities you deal with slightly differently. The politicians you deal with. And so I guess you're a community manager, weirdly, which I've never really said out loud, but that's what you do. You're, you're kind of directing the traffic of various communities 
and you're making sure the messaging is the same across each one, but written slightly differently to, I guess, provide the ultimate engagement possible. And I wasn't on my own. I was part of a coalition of like-minded campaigners who wanted the same thing. We all brought different things to the table. We were all geographically separate, so Wales and Folkestone, Sheffield, Redditch. But we, we were all on email at that time. We didn't really have much social media back in the day because we're talking sort of 2009, 10, 11. So Twitter hadn't really you know, exploded. There was no Instagram. Facebook, I guess, was the main social media platform. But in terms of resources, that's all you have. You know, the resources you have as a camp grassroots campaigner, you're not part of a big organisation that has a PR, a PR team, a public affairs team, a budget campaign. You, know, you don't have all that. You, you're just... Have, you're just working full-time as your job and doing everything in your spare time. So I've always said that the resources you have are social media and creativity. And sometimes creativity and imagination can be responsible for such change and impact. Because grassroots campaigning is all about getting noticed. And obviously if you have great campaigns and they're creative, you'll get noticed quicker and by the relevant media, let's say, and change can happen like that. And I think I owe a hell of a lot of that to my dad, who was in advertising and constantly was coming up with campaigns mm -hmm. on the creative side. And it just shows that we were five or six people working in our spare time as grassroots campaigners who very rarely saw each other, just on email. We knew what we wanted and we never crossed over our skill sets. The impact that can make when you're fighting against governments and industries and sometimes some of the biggest animal welfare organisations <laughs> in the country. So, yeah, resources is crucial. And that's, why, that's one of the reasons I wrote my last book, which is about all this. basically every chapter is a tool that's out there that's accessible and free so everyone can do it. And I wrote it because I didn't want anyone wasting their time or resources because we don't have much of them. And if someone can pick up a book and go, right, I can do that and that will make that difference and it's fairly easy and it's free and this is how to do it and these are case studies, then I'll do it. I was always conscious during the journey of no one else spending as more time than they had to on, on the various steps it takes to make progress and change happen. So how long did it take from that seeing the eight puppies to Lucy's Law? So Lucy's Law, it's important to point out, is, a, is the banning of third-party sellers. Yeah. So that was always what we were trying to aim for. It was called the campaign to ban commercial third-party puppy and kitten sellers and mm -hmm. dealers, which is a huge mouthful. <laughs> When you're explaining it to someone, they've probably fallen asleep or become distracted by the time you got to the end of the sentence. Which, again, was a huge lesson because it wasn't succinct enough. Mm. The reason we called it Lucy's Law eventually is because we'd hit every brick wall. We'd been told it was never going to happen, at least for another five years, even to be considered. And we were fighting against these organisations and government and industry. And we were at our lowest ebb. And Lucy, who was a most incredible Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, rescued from a legal licensed puppy farm who was a personality in herself. She had a social media page, Facebook, 70-odd thousand followers. Her own Elisa, who lived in Birmingham. But she was basically raising awareness of rescue dogs and puppy farming with the resources she had, an iPhone and Facebook. And incredible what she did. And again, imagination, creativity. Lucy the Rescue Cavalier was the page. It still exists. I, I encourage everyone to look it up on Facebook. And she sadly passed away in 2016 on December the 8th. In 2017, we hit our lowest ebb, and I was operating on a dog just down the coast from where we are in Brighton, in a place called Peacehaven. And it just came to me that if we renamed and rebranded the campaign to ban commercial puppy and kitten sellers and dealers and call it Lucy's Law, A, we have a phenomenal alliteration, B, the hashtag is just a gift, we have the backstory, and it's personal, and... I designed You've got a face of a campaign. Face of a campaign, and I designed the brand on the back of an envelope. It got turned into an actual brand, literally within a few hours by the Mirror, who became our media partner. And then we launched Lucy's Law, and we were successful with it. But it took ten years mm. from beginning the campaign, seeing those puppies, to actually the first Lucy's Law passing. Because then we passed it in animal welfare law is devolved in the in the British Isles, so. There's different laws in Wales, different laws in Northern Ireland, Scotland. So we had to then do campaigns in each of those countries as well. But it's a lot easier when you've got one. Mm -hmm. it's a, and it's a lesson for anyone campaigning for 
a law that is devolved, which means it's its, its own legislation in other countries, always just get one, and then you can go, well, they've done it. Why can't you do it? It is a bit of a fear of missing out driver. So Lucy's law provided a legal framework where investigations and prosecutions could happen if the public or anyone else suspected that either wasn't the mum or the mum wasn't there or there was something dodgy going on before there was no accountability, before someone would go to a pet shop, they'd buy a pup, a bit like the ones that we treated in 2009, and go back to the pet shop or the riding stables and say, my puppy died or my puppy's really ill, I've got a bill of £3,000. And they go, so what? And they go, well, where was it bred? I'm not telling you. So what Lucy's Law did was, uh, and it's no, no way a silver bullet to end puppy farming, but it made every dog and cat breeder in the UK accountable, which is the first step in, in ending irresponsible and unscrupulous breeding and selling. And there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. But it's, it's all about accountability, and as, as well as education, and, and, a, and a good campaign will educate at the same time. So the, ulti- the three goals, really, for campaigning, I always think, is raising awareness, changing public behaviour, and potentially influencing legislation, or all three. And what do you think the benefits are of, of getting a puppy for a family? Oh, my God. For a person? Or any animal. Any animal. Companionship. Unconditional love is the phrase that's often banded around. But it's a family friend. It's someone that you can trust. It's someone that you can tell secrets to or your kids can. And also, you know, if you want to rescue an animal, which I would always promote over anything, you're helping that animal have a new life you're providing a space for another animal that needs to be in a shelter. And your work. And I always think this bond is stronger, and I've seen this from experience, the bond is stronger when people adopt an animal from a shelter, animal with a problem from a shelter, an animal with a behavioural problem from a shelter, because they have to, if they're committed enough, which you want them to be, obviously. Work on that relationship. To work on that relationship. And I've seen the best relationships happen when, they, when people have adopted a dog that's broken. And Lucy is a really good example of that. Beforehand, before Lisa got Lucy, she only bought puppies, or the family. She didn't know about rescue, she didn't know about puppy farming. Lucy had epilepsy, arthritis, dry eye, separation anxiety. She had all these problems. And working with a broken, shut-down dog, as they're often known, from a puppy farm, is often a way of not speeding up bonding, but really increasing the strength of that bond because you're working to get them better. And ex-puppy farm dogs classically don't know how to be dogs because they've never been on grass, they've never eaten out of a bowl before, they've never been stroked. So they have to be rehomed with a dog that's already a dog just to learn how to be a dog, which is horrific. So I would always say to people, for an even stronger pet-human bond, then always go rescue and always try and rescue an animal that maybe needs even more help and work with a behaviourist, do it appropriately and properly because you may actually have a much better uh, relationship out the back of it. So Robin Hewings, who's the campaign director of Campaign to End Loneliness, he wrote an article for the RSPCA, and in it, it it speaks about the benefits of having a pet for loneliness and companionship, and actually people who lived on their own but had a pet during lockdown suffered less in yeah. terms of being isolated and alone, and like you said, building empathy, building a relationship... I think that that bond that you have with an animal is so strong. Even I was reading examples of having a cat in a care home helps people in the care home mm-hmm. feel connected, build relationships, feel like they're looking after something, which also can yeah. give you a sense of purpose. A sense of purpose is really important, and also to look forward to something. So if you know the cat's coming in every Tuesday, oh my God, can't wait for Tuesday to come around. The other thing that dogs offer over cats with regard to loneliness is, of course, you have to walk them. And when you're walking a dog, you're more likely to encounter someone positively, hopefully, that wants to, you know, stroke the dog or start a conversation about the dog. I don't know, it, it offers up so many more opportunities to interact, I think. Maybe not so much with cats, obviously, because they live at home and they do their own thing. But dogs are especially... Very independent. <laughs> but they... Um, I doubt cats ever get lonely. They, so they thrive on <laughs> they, they do. On they thrive on, on solitude. Yeah. And <laughs> dogs... Are, on the other hand, obviously pack animals, so they thrive on interactions with other dogs and humans. So that's quite an interesting, lonely comparison, I think. Cats are so independent, and they, you know, even multi-cat households yeah, can they struggle. don't enjoy other cats' company. You yeah. know, you have to really work hard to have a, a harmonious family of cats in one house. 
cat flaps and cat trees and boxes and rooms for them to chill out in, cat um, diffusers in the walls, etc. So, yeah, that's quite a nice differentiation. But, yeah, dogs, I think, get people out and about. And um, part of a dog-owning community as well. Yes, and you see that a lot on, on social media, but also down the beach here, you'll have groups of people in the morning walking their dogs, hanging out, having coffees together. And it, and it, is, it, does, it does provide, again, a platform for pe- pe- common ground, people to come together and to, to feel included in, in, a, in a community. I also think sometimes people are scared to talk to other people, but when there's a dog or a baby... Yeah, it's an icebreaker. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's an absolute icebreaker. It feels easier. And, and talking about babies, it's worth saying that a lot of dogs, especially over lockdown, but a lot of dogs, which we call brachycephalic, are flat-faced dogs, so French Bulldogs, Pugs, Boston Terriers, are often purchased or rescued because they have baby faces they're round faces with big wide eyes and there's been a lot of studies done that people want to nurture and it releases oxytocin when they look at these dogs faces because it's like looking at a baby's face so wow. they're more likely to want that's why they're so popular they're more likely to want a french bulldog or a pug there's also a, a, another community of people that not just want a pug or a french bulldog or a flat-faced dog they want one that's got clear breathing problems or trouble walking because they want to nurture something that needs their help. Oh, my gosh. Sense of purpose, etc. So there's a lot of factors in terms of choosing a pet to be aware of. But, I mean, at the end of the day, I think as long as you go to rescue, where there are also puppies, it's dogs that their owners have died or dogs that have gone into rescue because their owners couldn't go into um, temporary accommodation. Dogs, uh, owners that have run out of money, especially at the moment, cost of living. There's so many reasons why these second-hand pets are available They've been neutered, they've been vaccinated, they've been deep wormed, <laughs> toilet trained. There's an expression I heard once called plug in, just plug in <laughs> pets, just plug in and go. And they are. So please, anyone listening, watching, please consider rescue first. There's so many rescue shelters around. And if you are of, of a lonely disposition, what a way to, to cure loneliness with pet companionship. And, and I know you said that you, you don't have, you can foster a pet. There we go. So you can try try out what it's like have yeah I'd, I'd never heard of this fostering a pet could you explain a bit yeah about that? so fostering is is definitely uh, an unknown quantity and it's one of the most fascinating things that pe- people just don't know about and it's basically temporary adoption so if you go to a rescue shelter and there's maybe a, a dog recovering for an operation and it needs cage rest for, say for example for six weeks then it's better to cage rest at home than in a shelter in a familiar um, circumstance. Sometimes it could be two years. Maybe the owner's gone abroad for two years or just emigrated and left the dog. So it's a temporary adoption. A lot of rescue dogs are fostered from puppy farms to get them used to a home environment and then they go to elsewhere. So there's lots of different reasons why you'd, why dogs would be up for foster. But again, it, it, it gives that dog a home environment rather than a shelter or cat. Can you foster cats? Yeah, you can foster cats. And it also provides an extra space in the kennels for another animal that needs it. So fostering, and and there's a lovely expression called failed fosterer. Yes, I wanted to ask you about this. It sounds really negative, but it's actually probably the most positive expression out there. That's when you've fostered an animal and you've decided that actually you'd like to keep it. And it's okay to keep it because the circumstances allow it. And you end up adopting it for good. And that's, that's called a failed fosterer, which I love. And there's many failed fosterers out that. there. <laughs> and it just shows that, you know, if you do strike a relationship with your pet and you become best friends, sometimes there is an opportunity to, to, to continue that relationship and, yeah, look after the, the pet for life. And I think also what you were saying about the benefits that pets can bring, it's also teaching compassion looking after yeah. looking after something i something about people struggling with diabetes or ch- children with diabetes looking after a pet made them then more able to stick to a routine and look after themselves because it builds discipline 100%. routine looking after something else and looking after yourself so i know that you teach in you go into schools and you talk to pupils about looking after animals and looking after each other so how how do you think one that building relationships with animals can build empathy and why do you think that's important for children because we live in a mean world kind of brutal world and there's so many factors 
you know, to, to grow up in a in a social media world is, I mean, it's so it's full of possibilities. It's not all negative, but it's also full of you know pr social pressure to conform. For example, especially appearance-wise, on for example Instagram, um, which we didn't have in, back in the day, um, and I think kids are now growing up, and they're, I mean, they're overloaded, I th in my opinion, with information twenty-four-seven, from social media, from the traditional school and friends, but also, it, it, you know, when we were young, petrol stations weren't open on a Sunday. There was four, three or four channels. We had such restricted options of what we could engage with, let's say, as an information source or a form of entertainment. Now, you could literally watch TikTok until you died and you'd still have content that you hadn't seen. And it's, there's no real, I mean, I guess that's where responsible parenting comes in, but there's no boundaries kind of set by society. It's a free-for-all and it's up to parents or guardians or maybe older brothers and sisters to say look you so I think by explaining empathy and compassion and kindness to kids using kind of caring for animals and looking out for each other it's a lot easier for them to get it rather than just telling them stuff it's explaining the tools and letting them make their minds up themselves so how do you do that so I, I have a, a set lesson plan and I do a local school visit probably every week in Brighton or around Brighton so we do it we start with a game and the game is a load of laminated pictures of baby animals and on the black back is uh, what they grow up to be. So there's easy ones like a fox cub and they have to guess what the adult is. So we start with, you know, what are you going to be when you grow up? And the, the, the question I'm, asking, I'm looking for is adult or grown up. But then you get doctor, vet, adult. Okay, so who are the, what are the grown ups of these baby animals? So we do fox cubs and kittens and goes a bit more difficult to have pole okay if you're going to answer this one you have to say the whole life cycle same with the caterpillar and it and it goes on this is a chance for me to just engage with them it's always quick fire there's no such thing as a wrong answer it's all it's always oh, so close or nearly or have another go it's never no that's wrong because that tends to put people off asking so it's a, a real culture of positivity and people going of people pupils going oh, 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 oh. And you know the thing they do when they're going to burst oh, oh, oh. and then the last picture is a baby hedgehog which does look odd and then you flip that and it's a hedgehog adult hedgehog with a broken leg with a bandage on its leg so then we go how do you know it's got a broken leg what signs of illness so we talk about signs of illness signs of illness with pets signs of illness with wildlife signs of illness with humans and you can just dip into each humans wildlife pets uh, signs of illness what, how to diagnose how to treat so we talk about that and make it quite a holistic approach so basically if a hedgehog can't eat it dies what happens to a human if it can't eat well it dies so it's it's making people realize that the same factors risks and outcomes happen to pets wildlife and humans and when I say humans I mean them their friends their teachers their parents and then we have, then we sort of back off a little bit and have a bit of another game, which is a bag of stuff from the surgery, which they have to guess what it is. And obviously some are more difficult than others, but we always work to an answer and we always get there in the end. And you can sometimes tell whose parents are nurses or doctors or vets. One four-year-old got endotracheal tube the other day. Wow. Didn't, didn't say it, but said that's, that's the tube for oxygen, you know, when you're making an animal better. And I was like, wow, who's told you this? <laughs> Who sent you? <laughs> But you're always surprised at some of the answers. I mean, they're amazing answers. But it, again, it's a, it's a culture of positivity and, and willing to shout out what they think. It's always hands up first, obviously. And then, um, and then we just talk about themes. You know, any questions? And we sometimes talk about flat-faced dogs. So this is primary school. So anything from two till nine. Mm -hmm. Eating animals, euthanasia. Sometimes the summer dangers of, with dogs, hot pavements, etc. So we tweak everything. It's about 45 minutes. And I usually do like three classes in the morning. So I'm usually at the school for sort of nine till 12. And it's absolutely fascinating. And I just think if you give the kids the tools to work the answers out themselves, rather than a grown-up stranger who's wearing a blue... Dictating. ...pajama top, effectively, to them, scrub top <laughs> in front of them, dictating and just talking, then they go, oh, that's why that happens. And you can see them working stuff out rather than telling them. And it's quick fire, bam, ask 
question, right? It's like there's no there's no more than two sentences I say before asking them for an answer. So it's really interactive. Kids seem to like them, and I always do. I've done them for like twenty years. But then, funny enough, post lockdown, I've introduced the caring for one, looking out for one another one, because before that it was all about animals. Now, how do you link that with, um, that, with animals? What and each diseases? Other? What diseases can humans have that are invisible? Oh. That's usually the one, and it's and they all hands up even if they're four years old. Mental health, it's it's so well wow. known now. And the other thing I do is one of the props from the bag is a dog muzzle, so usually they they kind of know what it is. But then we talk about dog safety and how to approach dogs responsibly and not to run up to them and pull their tail. Ask the owner, uh, let them sniff your hand. I mean a lot of them know this already, which is fantastic. But that information can save their life, you know. So a lot of the stuff I do in Westminster, again, is about education, maybe getting that on the school curriculum one day, about just the school visit, teaching empathy, compassion, kindness, caring for each other, plus the dog safety element. So it all, it's all intertwined, weirdly. Is there an element about humans connecting with nature? Yeah, always. Some of my cards, pictures, there's a seagull chick, which obviously everyone down here should know what it is. There's also a starling, and I'm not sure if you're aware, but in winter we have the murmurations around the pier. So a lot of it is about, you know, who's seen a starling, who's seen a, a bat, who's seen a seagull, making, making them aware that these animals are in our... But, I mean, a lot of them, especially in Brighton, a lot of kids do see the, the, the countryside and the seaside and they know exactly what's going on. And they're already engaged. Kids love animals. The second episode of the podcast was with a forest bathing guy, oh. Tansy, and that we were discussing how feeling connected to nature as well helps you feel more connected to yourself and to others and less lonely. It can yeah. help reduce feelings of loneliness. So there's yeah multiple ways in which teaching kids from a young age about being connected to animals and being connected to nature can can make them feel maybe part of something greater yeah, than themselves. I guess I guess you're always providing opportunities for them to go, oh, I haven't thought of that. Maybe ask your parents or whoever looks after you to take you on a countryside walk or just to walk along the beach and see stuff and find stuff. Oh, yeah, and then obviously since I got awarded my OBE, I take that now to the lessons. Oh, yeah. And I've got the picture of the king, who was Prince Charles then, but the king giving it to me. And I say that... And then, oh, wow. Anyway, I say um, I got a medal from the king for being kind to animals and humans, or mainly animals, but if you're kind to humans and animals, you can maybe... Everyone in this room has the opportunity to get a medal from the king. And then I go, who wants a medal from the king? Everyone. Everyone. <laughs> and then they all t come up and they can touch the medal. And I say, the king's touched this, so they touch it. Which is massive. I can't even imagine how their minds... Are, some of them, well, the ones that care, minds are blown. I would have been at that age. Because, again, it's a connection, isn't it? And hope that that inspires kids to just be nice and and empathetic and, and just care about animals and humans preferably both but just to think and just have the tools on board now to go okay I need to do something about that I need to tell a grown up or a teacher someone's ill you know and I just think there's so much cruelty and injustice in the world if you start empowering kids at that age with the tools to work out what's right and wrong and when to seek help it's, it can only result in less injustice and cruelty and, and maybe even prejudice and bullying and stuff like that. So, yeah, I try and do my bit. And I also think that if... I think everyone can do a school visit. You don't have to be, a, like, a vet. You can be, a, obviously, a, something medical, but you can also be any job. You can be a lawyer. You can be an accountant. I think kids really do listen to strangers coming in and talking about what they're passionate about. And I think the more people that did it, I think kids will get a much more well-rounded, broader view of jobs, different jobs, and just different opinions. But as long as it's all underpinned with compassion, I don't think you can go wrong with that. So in many things that you do, or I guess all you do, you really build community around people who are passionate about yeah. improving welfare for animals and caring about nature and the environment around us. How did you start doing that? Was it through social media? Funny thing is, 
you know, as a self-confessed nerd, I now seem to be in a position that I guess I, the word is facilitates. I can bring people together, bring people together whether they like animals or nature, and I kind of know how to form a community. I don't. It's, it's a difficult one because, from a psychology point of view. I'm from a, a background that thrives on safety in numbers, I think. And I think it also thrives on being accepted and being included and being Jewish, although I'm not a practice, I'm not really a practicing Jew. I like the traditions, but that's about it. There is a sense of community there. Northwest London is where I'm from, although I live here. So I've, I've experienced what it's like to be in a community and how important it feels to be included in the community. So I think I've got those tools from that. And then I guess if I see something that needs either raising awareness about or some sort of campaign in Westminster, I kind of know the tools of how to bring people together to make that happen. And I don't quite know why. I, I genuinely think anyone can do it. I, I, I guess the best example, of, I mean, there's a few examples. There's one during the third lockdown. There's a group of us that used to go down the beach every sunset and I say sunset in the looser sense of the word it was January and it was miserable <laughs> and it was freezing and occasionally snowing and really windy okay. but we go down by the pier and just watch the murmuration of starlings and I didn't know the others there was about six of them they were all photographers and people sort of in the 50s and 60s and I was the weirdo who was on his own again on his own in my big coat just filming and putting on social media and it was all about the starlings and, and we eventually got chatting and I was putting stuff out on social media and the peer saw it and the peer started retweeting it and the peer contacted me and said, do you want to come on the pier during the third lockdown when everything's closed and shoot murmurations, shoot with the camera, obviously. Um, <laughs> yeah, thank God. <laughs> yeah, right? Um, from the pier. And obviously the pier was closed and there's no music and there's no people, so you could have this unbelievable experience where you could hear the wings of the starlings as they changed direction. But I went down to this group of people and I said, and I, I said do you want to come on the pier? We've got permission oh my god amazing so now we're a group of people on the pier when it's pier's closed filming the murmuration I said if we're doing this there's a local TV channel called Latest can we make it maybe a little documentary about it they're like yeah why not well if we're going to do that why don't we bring an expert in yeah right so all of a sudden I'm directing a documentary <laughs> on the pier of these other six or seven starling enthusiasts and we did this documentary and we got someone from the Sussex Ornithological Society to, to explain why they murmurate, blah, blah, blah. Documentary went out, it's still available on latest TV. It's called Bird Dance in the Sky. So we had this documentary off the back of nothing. Started from just a few individuals From literally watching, just going, going down going the, to beach, the beach, right? Wow. And then Anne, who runs the pier, who's an amazing friend of mine, she said, maybe you know, when the starlings, they disappear in March, should we have something a bit more substantial when they come back in November? So we set up Starling's Roost, hashtag Starling's Roost, which is a dedicated observation platform on the pier where people can buy Starling photography, they can, their kids can do an origami Starling. It was opened by Caroline Lucas. We had someone playing a guitar, doing a Starling poem, loads of press, got the news, and now it still exists as Starling's, and there's a huge sort of wooden Starling that people have their picture taken next to. So that was a, a perfect case study of an idea that kind of the solution was to raise awareness about starlings. And the last starling season, every single sunset, there's a line of people along wow. the western side of the pier waiting for them, not just turning up when they arrive, waiting 20, 30 minutes for them beforehand, it's, it's, which is unheard of in this day and age because everything has to be instant. But it's almost stopped people in their tracks because they want to see the starlings that fear of missing out. So that, that worked wonders, and that was a classic example of sort of... There's a few of us did it, I can't take all the credit, but just driving something forward that has now resulted in something really beneficial for not just the people of Brighton and Hove and surrounding area, but the starlings themselves, because coupled with that campaign, if you like, was reducing insecticides, maybe providing more nest boxes, maybe putting more food out in the winter for, for the starlings. So there's always a campaigning animal welfare element to everything I do. It's just, you just never know where it's going to come from next. I love that. And I also love how it starts as individuals. Yeah. Common ground. Separate activity, common ground. Mission. Builds a community, 
get other people involved, it becomes a movement. A movement, a movement's a really good word and it's exactly what happens and you can perform movements about anything really and I have done. Have you seen the video, How to Start a Movement? No. It's really funny, it's like, it's like oh, a, maybe in a I music have. festival. Yes, and everyone's sitting on the grass. That's right. One random person starts yeah. dancing. It's like, who's that weirdo? One other person joins. And, and then, then the slowly, end, it's weirder to be sitting ones. down yeah. than to be, yeah. And that's, that's a really good analogy of, of campaigning, really. It just takes one person to do something. And then everyone kind of piles in and hopefully offers their various skill sets to, to accelerate that solution happening. And it's also about raising awareness and shifting public perception, isn't it? And for it to become more normal. To yeah, be. you're normalising yeah. things that maybe people haven't considered. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the Loneliness Charity in Brighton, who I'm now a very proud ambassador of, TogetherCo, mm-hmm. togetherco.org.uk, I was aware of them from social media, had a little look, didn't take long to realise, wow, what a charity. All animal lovers, April, the CEO, is just wonderful, big fan of rescue pets. And then I thought, you know the whole curing loneliness with companionship from pets so we linked up with the RSPCA Brighton mm-hmm. we had a few meetings and it was like why hasn't this been done before so again we set up a campaign called Pause to Connect which we launched on the pier yes I wanted to ask you about Pause to and Connect it, and it's so simple it's, it's, not even a, it's not even really a campaign it's like an awareness it's almost like a, a suggestion rather than a campaign it's like have you considered and have you considered owning a pet to or help just ado- with yeah, ado- adopting well owning and then go to the, the shelter and foster or adopt so again it's it's facilitating I find myself a facilitator now and I love that so I've just again I've done a, a documentary which is about campaigning and dog welfare as well but it, again I'm kind of leading the documentary but it's involving all the people I've met along the way that have really helped me and supported what I'm trying to achieve for animals and I think a lot of campaigning and forming movements has to involve a hell of a lot of thanking and nods and giving back to the people that actually helped you develop that's in life in general but I think even more so with grassroots campaigning because you don't have the resources you don't have the budget you don't have the ear of government you're just someone with an idea that wants to get it over the line so I've always made a point of thanking people along the way and maintaining those links with that community I guess yeah but again um, as well as the RSPCA Brighton um the peer are working quite closely with the Loneliness Charity Together Co. That's char- they've made them Charity of the Year. And peers, weirdly, the Peer Society are backing this as well. Peers are, again, kind of metaphors for loneliness because they're structures that aren't on land and they're kind of on their own. And people will go there and have their social time and rides maybe and um, sit on a deck chair and then they'll leave them and the peer is always there and there's a there's a really interesting we didn't really realise this until we started to have these conversations that the peer is kind of a metaphor for a lonely individual so the peer society is now backing what we're doing um, and I think there's a few other events planned in National Loneliness Awareness Week on various peers around the country oh. so we're sort of ticking a few sort of weird boxes when it comes to that buzz phrase of social prescribing so I was yeah. reading an article from All Party Parliamentary, Parliamentary Group yeah. for Cats. I was reading a report that they'd written and they were talking about social prescribing pets yeah. as part of a holistic solution for loneliness. 100%. And this works if people want... So you can't just tell someone to get a pet if they don't want a pet. Yeah. But I think they were saying that if you did think that a pet could help with your loneliness, then it most likely will and especially people that live on their own. Well, this is where fostering comes in. Yeah. Because then you can just try, try. try I mean, it sounds horrible, try before you buy. Mm. You know, it's not meant like that, but it's almost like a, a temporary arrangement, and if it doesn't work out, it's absolutely fine, and there's no stigma or shame attached with that. But the option is there, and mm-hmm. I think that option needs to be publicised, which is, again, um, what Go Cats were, were doing, and, and certainly what we're doing with Pause to Connect and Together Co and RSPCA Brighton. And, and by all means, I, I really want to roll this out across the country because there's so many loneliness charities and campaigns, obviously so many rescue shelters, and they're full to the brim because all the lockdown pets are now being returned because people have gone back to work and, of, of course, cost of living crisis. There's lots of plug-in pets out there to foster plug-in or adopt. Um, and there's, oh, and you're there's tempting of, me to get a dog. And ah. there's lots of loneliness, <laughs> lonely databases, let's say. Yeah. So let's hope this is a cure for shelters being you know full a a cure for people 
not to have to buy a pet, which are expensive, mm. obviously. And if you can get a plug-in pet that's already house-trained and neutered and vaccinated and just ready to go because their owner's died or their owner can't afford to keep them, then why wouldn't you adopt instead of buying? Obviously, do your research and, and look online at different rescue shelters and visit them. But yeah, hopefully this will, even, you know, even just to start conversations up, how many people don't know about fostering? How many people don't know where the local rescue shelter is? How many people don't know that loneliness is a big deal for people? And there's a lot of people suffering it of all ages. I think the more we talk rising. about it and, yeah. the, and the normalization of these conversations, the more people and animals that can be helped eventually. Definitely. So what are your next steps? Just about to finish filming a documentary, which okay. is the, the edit started in Prague. And that's about campaigning and fertility clinics for dogs, which is like a, quite an alarming rise at the moment in this country. I think my, my project that I'd love to get out there, and I probably will at some point, is a children's book. And I wrote it 16 years ago, because I'm a keen scuba diver. <laughs> and I noticed that when you dive on a coral reef, you see symbiotic relationships. So animals working together to survive, and these animals don't often look alike. And that fascinated me, because I felt this is a really good life lesson for kids about racism and prejudice and bullying. So I thought I'd, I'd write a book about it. So it's, it's, it's written, it's called Leon's Reef, and Leon is a little yellow boxfish, and by nature of little yellow boxfish, they're sort of very inquisitive and they sort of dart around and they're always solitary, so you could argue that they may be lonely. And he goes around his reef one day questioning the symbiotic relationships and there's the cleaner wrasse in the shark's mouth. There's the anemone fish in the anemone, which could sting it, but it doesn't because it's covered in fish covered in mucus. There's a crab that snips off bits of seaweed to make a camouflage and then the seaweed can go to different places in the ocean. Then there's my favourite, which is the the uh, goby fish and the blind shrimp the blind shrimp keeps the hole open in the sand and the goby fish sits in the hole waiting for predators and they both dart in so there's sort of four examples of animals that look so different behave so different but depend on each other for survival literally can't survive without the other so i thought that's a really good model it all rhymes and then there's a little bit of there's a twist i won't spoil it no spoilers oh my god i need Um, to read this and i will show you because it's a picture book so i'm at the moment it's written and I'm looking for, if anyone's watching or listening that knows a good literary agent for a children's book, get in touch. Because I really want to get it out there. Because I think, again, it's another vehicle that kids can learn about acceptance and community and environment. And it's non-fiction. It's the, mm-hmm. Everything's true in it. So, um, yeah, I hope, I hope that will be, that's another legacy I want to leave, uh, which is for tiny, teeny tiny kids, maybe three to six to learn and to hopefully prevent bullying and prevent racism and prevent, yeah, just horrible things that happen. That, that, that sort promote of kids, a sense of belonging. Yeah, and inclusivity and, and, yeah, it's just a nice thing. Just, I just want to keep putting out nice things that kids and adults can engage with that can prevent bad things happening. <laughs> it's so simple when you boil it down. But, Not that simple. But, but there are all sort of lots of different projects that all try and do a, same, a similar thing, mm-hmm. just via different routes and how can people get involved with wildlife support and rescue centres and supporting the local wildlife in their community I think everyone I think there's, there's wildlife trusts in every county and I think that would be my first port of call we've got one obviously Sussex Wildlife Trust but there are there is a, a, an overarching brand which is the wildlife trust so go to them and, you know, it doesn't take much when you're out walking to see or notice stuff happening, maybe volunteers digging ditches or building brick walls or repairing fences. I think that's a great way to start. And then, you know, that leads to just interacting with people, having more conversations, just being aware of more stuff going on. Obviously, social media, websites, research online can lead you to all sorts of projects going on, not just here but abroad. I mean, a lot of the stuff I've done for animal welfare has been from the Amazon to China to India to the Ukraine but it just shows that you can, you can help anywhere and you can help anything you just need to care enough mm. and get involved so we usually end this podcast on two questions Ooh. the first question is when did you last feel lonely I think when you're campaigning so I do a lot of work with my all-party parliamentary group you've always got a sense of loneliness with campaigning 
where so I, I now use that to oversee a lot of campaigns and to sort of facilitate change and open doors for people and, and obviously animals so I think there's always a loneliness element to that because you're going to Westminster and you're having these meetings and sometimes you're lobbying individual MPs there is an element of loneliness to that it's a, it's a sort of a loneliness I felt a lot more when I was full-on campaigning and it's the loneliness where you can't not do what you're doing you're so committed to it that and it takes years and it takes all your resources and all your mental capacity you kind of watch everyone else getting on with their lives through like a thick perspex shield they're together they're pregnant they're <laughs> having a baby they're getting married they're having another and you're all around everyone's sort of making progress with their lives while you're desperately trying to make progress with your campaigning mm. and i think that always delivers a sense of you've almost trapped yourself in your own world of campaigning mm. and i think that often feels lonely not so, not always in a bad way you're just really aware of it so yeah but the, nothing beats seeing the results of campaigning yeah. and that's why we do it because it's 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 improving it's helping it's making progress on animals and, and humans lives my final question is what advice would you give to someone to help them feel more connected i think there's never been a time where it's been easier to find let's say societies groups sports teams hobbies that that can encourage you to interact with other people i mean i support brighton hove albion this is a really good example actually i've got a season ticket every time i go it's obviously season ticket you sit in the same place every game i've been going to brighton hove albion for years we know the people in front we know the people next to us we know the people behind don't know their names not all of them don't know what they do but when there's a goal we all hug each other oh. and, at, and at the beginning and the end of the game we say hello and we say goodbye we hug and that's it and it's it's such a weird community because you don't know who these people are but you're brought together by a love of football and Brighton Hove Albion common ground shared passions shared passions wildlife is a great one a feeling of relevance and a feeling of purpose mm -hmm. and belonging and meeting other people who have that shared interest with you that yeah, automatically you, you, creates a connection exactly and I think I, I mean I do, you know when I say it's never been easier for some people it's never been harder with so much mm. available but I think you've just got to make that first step and if it doesn't work out and if it's not the group or society or team for you then that's okay there's, there's enough for everyone or maybe set up your own one you know that that works for you and may attract others and I think there's something to be said for that regularity like you said with um, Brighton routine. and Hove Albion routine like whether it's going to the same exercise class every yeah. week or dance class Being or art class or watching the starlings every sunset yeah. like it's seeing the same people on a routine and you're building that into it's your life absolutely and you know next game so what day is it today Friday next game is on Monday Yes, I'm looking forward to the game, but I'm also looking forward to being around all these people that I don't really know what they do or, or some of their <laughs> But names. in that moment in time, yeah. you are all there but that's as a fans. It's like a micro yeah. community in that tiny yeah. area in the stadium. And I think that analogy applies to all sorts of, as I say, clubs, societies, teams, common interest yeah. groups. So yeah, it's there for the taking. It's up to us to kind of make it happen or maybe up to our families or friends to maybe persuade us to. But I think as long as you know that if it doesn't work out, it's okay. Mm. It's, it, you know, it's no shame, then it's okay. You know, it's, it's, I think it's often a fear of failure that prevents people from making that first move. Yeah. I also like the idea of the regularity, like, and the doing the same thing with the same group of people relationships take time to build you probably weren't hugging them the first time you went to one of those games but now you've been doing that for x number of years exactly. that builds the relationship over time and understanding that yeah. it will take time but mm. i think the more connections we make and the more prepared we are to make those connections and reach out and start those conversations i think the the, the world does sort of it doesn't become a small world because we're, I think we're far more connected than we think mm -hmm. we are. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just by reaching out and uncovering and revealing those connections, 
we can only form tighter communities that then can only sort of look out for each other and cliche make the world a much better place for everybody Thank humans you and animals so much that is a lovely lovely yeah. place to end so thank you so much for your time My i've loved Fenella. this conversation yeah thank we you. could talk for hours about i know this stuff. maybe we'll do a part two but yeah thanks for listening yeah, thanks